Good morning. It's good to be here and to see everybody here today. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles. We'll be going to the book of John. You're reading in chapter 13. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We'll be starting in verse 31, reading through 35. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If you know the context, the he that has gone out here is Judas. He's went out, and the eleven are the ones who are remaining who he's going to be speaking to. 32, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews... Where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let us ask for the help of the Lord as we go for him today. Father, I'm reminded as we come to your word this morning that, Lord, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Unless you take your word and you press it on the hearts of your people, the most eloquent tongue cannot do one thing. Our Father, we look to you. As hearers, I ask for your help, Father, that you'd help me to preach your word in truth. Let me not veer to the right or to the left. And Father, I pray that I would preach it in the help and the power of your Spirit. Oh, Father, make us to walk more like our Savior through the preaching of your Word. Help us all here, I pray. We need your grace, O oh God. We look to you, who sat enthroned in glory on the spheres of this world, and are ordering everything after the counsel of your own will. And we ask, please help in this hour. Have your eye upon our little gathering today. In Jesus' name, amen. Tomorrow, as many of you know, will mark 505 years since the Reformation. And what more fitting of a New Testament reading than Jude for the remembrance of what God done over 500 years ago. In raising up a man by the name of Martin Luther, who nailed the 95 Theses, justification by faith was preached and proclaimed loudly. We look back and we ought to be ever rejoicing and thankful to God for what he's done. Now, what in the world does that have to do with what we're doing here today? Because this text seems to have nothing to do with that. Well, let me say this. And I think the Reformers and those who came out from and the Puritans would agree the doctrines of the Reformation in themselves, by themselves, is not what sets the church apart. You can hold to every one of them, those doctrines, and go straight to hell. That's reality. That's true. 
you can believe God is sovereign. You can believe sola scriptura. And it all be but theoretical. And you're not a Christian. There is such thing as dead orthodoxy. Martin Lloyd-Jones had some sermons many years back on a revival, and he spoke of that very point. One of the things we ought to be ever on our guard against, well, number one, we're in truth. But number two, are we dead to the truths what we're speaking of? What is the mark of the church? What sets the church apart according to the word of God? Not man's opinion or anyone else's opinion here. It's right there in verse 35. By this, all shall know you are my disciples. It is the love that God has commanded in his word among his people, particularly, that sets the church apart as his disciples. That is according to his word, not my opinion. It is that love that will set the church apart. That love originates with God himself and is it preeminently shown through Jesus Christ and then it is expressed amongst us here one to another. And the text that we're coming to today is going to wed all three of those themes together. That of the perfect, holy, divine expression from Christ to us of love, the command to express it and have it to one another. And as a result, we as Christ's disciples will be set apart and be known in the world in which we're walking through on the way home to glory. So we're going to address our text in three headings this morning. So if you like headings being announced beforehand, um, first, the command, we're going to seek to break down what is it we're commanded to do in this text. What are we commanded to do here? Secondly, we're going to deal with its expression, the guide for how we are to do it. And then finally, we're going to land on its distinction. What is the result of this command when it is obeyed? If you would, let's go to our first, our first heading this morning. We're going to deal with the command itself. The first thing that we come to, verse 34, if you would read with me. A new commandment I give to you. As we're coming to this, we got to first understand, what do you mean a new commandment? What does he mean? Well, let's talk about what he doesn't mean. It's not that love has not been commanded all throughout the scriptures. We know that Christ has already commanded through his teaching to love people, love our neighbors as ourselves even to love our enemies. And nor is this the first time love has even been commanded to a covenant people of God. In Leviticus 19.18, there was a special love that was commanded that Israel was to have for one another in Israel. Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor, which is the people of Israel, particularly in the context as thyself, I am the Lord. So it's not new for any of those things. This command has came in the scriptures before and out of the lips of Christ himself in the ministry they have heard. What is the thing that sets it apart? I'm gonna say, I think there's two things that make this commandment new. One, this commandment is new in the sense it comes in the context of a new covenant to a new covenant people. 
as compared to the old. Now let, let's compare with the, see what the previous verse says. He had just told them what he had told them. He has also told it to the Jews. And now he shifts. There's something new he's going to tell them that was not necessarily under that old covenant which the Jews were in. This in which he is going to command them, the difference between this old and new covenant commandment is this. In the old, com- com- or in the old covenant, love was commanded among a nation, a particular nation of people. This love, the new, co- new, co- new covenant commands love to is a people of all nations under the banner of Jesus Christ. There are going to be a large mixed gathering of people, personalities, backgrounds, and they're going to come together under Jesus Christ and through his blood. Secondly, this is this commandment compared to the old. It is but the old covenant love was commanded but not kept by all in the covenant. Whereas in the new covenant it is both kept and is commanded by God himself. He enables his people. It's a fruit of being in this new covenant that we love one another. That is distinct. In the old covenant, there would be both believers that are true, looking forward to Jesus, and there would be unbelievers. But in the new covenant, it is not so. Every person in the new covenant that is truly in the new covenant is regenerate and saved. It is the law of God written in their hearts, the spirit of God that arises this love in their hearts. Even as uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, this love is taught to you of God. He teaches his people and enables them to keep this love. That's totally different than anything that was under the old covenant. There was the command, but not the power to keep the command. And it is with every believer that is in this new covenant. To some degree, not perfectly, but it will be to some degree. Secondly, this commandment, I think this is primarily what he's referring to, is new in the sense of its guide and its expression. There has never been an expression of love like that which we are to imitate, namely that of Jesus Christ, as I have loved you. This expression sets this commandment apart as totally new. There has never been a display of love as, as it was in the person of Jesus Christ. He refer, could refer to no higher standard than that of himself, which he had laid and exhibited preeminently on the cross. And he says, this commandment will be new in that sense. Now, secondly, as we seek to break down this commandment this morning, And this may seem somewhat of a minor point, and I wrestled whether or not to even address it. But this commandment, as we're breaking it down, we need to understand what does he mean by that term, love? Now, you you live in a culture that has its definition of love, which is usually dealing with that of feelings. It is what you feel. You love a car, you love a house. You know, love is said in marriages all across this country, and yet we have almost a 50% divorce rate. That's not love. That's not the love he's talking about here. The Greek term here is agapate. 
And when you're coming to this term as it generally is used across the New Testament, we're dealing with a principled commitment to, which is implying faithfulness and a warm affection for. And depending on the context, can determine which of these are being the more emphasized. So just to give you for the context here that supports, I believe what he is pressing on his people and commanding here is a love, a principled commitment, and a warm affection right alongside one another, wedded together. That is what I believe we're commanded to do. And I would say this because of the context indicates this. Number one, we see in chapter 13, verse one, read with me here at the very end of verse one. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is of commitment. That love, he is committed to his people. It's the same Greek term there. He has loved them. He's committed himself all the way to the end for their souls. Secondly, that of affection comes with the very simple words. Verse 33, right next to, uh, right above our verses we're looking at. He says, little children. There is this warmth and affection. This is the first time, as far as I'm aware, in the Gospels, Christ has spoken to his disciples in this manner. There's this warmth. There's this picture that you see from Isaiah of the everlasting father pictured here in our Lord Jesus Christ as he tenderly comes to his disciples. And I believe as we're coming to this command and he's saying, you, you love one another as I have loved you. He's referring to both principled commitment and he's going to be dealing with that of affections. It's not one or the other and you cannot divorce the two. Now, secondly, I say this not only because that, but the larger context of the New Testament as it deals with this command and it's fleshed out in other writers of the New Testament, it seems to illustrate this. Two texts just for a type. First, you all can turn with me if you'd like. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. Paul here writing to the Corinthians says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love or agape you, the less I am loved. Considering the reality of who Paul is writing to, this is astounding. Why? The Corinthians are doubting his apostleship. What motive does he have within them to love them and commit himself in such a manner? And he does it gladly. The love he's speaking here, Paul's mind is not, oh, I'm just going to begrudgingly commit myself to these people. It is that of glad-hearted affection alongside of that commitment. Secondly, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and I think this is very clear where this term is used alongside of affection. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently, not merely in the commitment alone, but a growing in affection. You ought to love one another fervently. And I believe when our Lord is talking in this command, he is combining both of those ideas. Now, what, what is the thrust of this? The great temptation that we have is to lean on one or the other sides of this. We excuse our lack of love and affections one for another or our commitment or we're to be led by our emotions. Neither of those is what our Lord is commanding us to here. It is both and. 
and anything less is less than what we're commanded to. That's what I would argue from the scriptures. Now, our thirdly, as we're coming to this command, I want us to notice this. We need to take note of who this command charges us to love. You know, at the very end here in verse 34, he says, a new, or I'm sorry, in the middle of verse 34, that you love one another. This particular command is not addressed to neighbors, not to the enemies, though those things are commanded elsewhere. That's not what he's speaking of here. This is a command you love one another in the church. And this is to the 11 of the foundational stones that will be in the church according to Ephesians 2.20. This is in the church. That's where the command is primarily here. Just consider, and not only this, the vast majority of the time when we are encountering the command to love in the New Testament is at least the vast majority of my own studies. Among people, it is the church commanded to love one another. Consider as we went through 1 John just how often he's saying, talking about love amongst the brethren. Not only that, 2 John, he repeats the command. Hebrews writer, Hebrews 6.10, he reminds them of their labor of love towards the saints. This theme of love is exhorted and amplified, permeates the whole of our New Testament. He is over and over and over again in multiple different writers. We are commanded to love in the church. And not only that, I think it could be fairly said, this love in the church ought to be of a higher importance and priority on our list than even those other relations, even the relations in the flesh, even that of the world. Why? Galatians 6.10, he says, do good unto all, especially to those of the household of faith. There is a special sense where we're to give an attention of love to the church one another. That is what he's commanding here. See, and I fear, I hear so much in the church in this hour. There's a lot of attention on doing things for the world, love, and, and those things are good and commanded in the scriptures. It's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But that often this is what is neglected. It is the attention to love one another in the body of Christ. There is an especial sense where I believe in the scriptures we can reasonably, reasonably come to the conclusion there is a higher priority we ought to have one to another and even that in the world. Even that of our family. To some degree, to some measure. Secondly, if you would, let us just summarize what this command in which as we broke it down as best we can to the basic meaning. It is a command of a principled and affectionate commitment to one another in the church. And this is what he has said will be the new commandment. It's going to set apart the church. This is the, the command that by this they're all going to know you're my disciples. If you would now look with me at the second heading. We're going to go to the expression, the guide, the standard of this love. Notice with me in verse 34. As I have loved you, this is the heart of the command. The command that comes to us revolves around this little phrase. It is that which, it is this phrase which our love is measured and guided by and flows from. So there's two questions that we ought to ponder as we're coming to this. 
One, what are the particular expressions Christ is here referring to? This we gather from the implication that Christ here refers to that which they had seen or will see. This is something that's been before their eyes. And he's saying, now as you have seen and as I have loved you, you also love one another. You, you imitate the example I've set you to do. So what is it, the expressions he's referring to? And then the second question we're going to ask is in what ways does Christ love, serve, and this as the standard of our love to one another. And this is implied by the words as, and that you also are to do this, even as he has loved us. First, let us answer the first question. I believe there's two ways we can answer this. One, we can answer it in general. I think it can be fairly stated that all of Christ's actions in his life up and into this point and at his death were expressions of his love to his disciples. I don't think it's an overstatement. He instructs them in love all throughout the New Testament, through the Gospels. He's patiently dealing and bearing with them in love. His kindness often expressed toward them. So in one sense, this command, I believe, easily could become such an overwhelming subject. Just studying the example of Christ over and over throughout the Scriptures, you could exhaust this. Somebody could write a book on this point, I believe. And you would never richly pull out all that is really there. We have been given a complete and perfect example how we are to exercise and express our love to one another. But I do believe there are two or three particular expressions of his love that he is here referring to. One, first I believe he is referring to the love expressed in humility. He's, this is referring to what just happened in John 13, 12 through 17. There he's washing the very feet of his disciples. I, the wonder of this, I do not believe, can be overstated. This is the one who prior to his incarnation was set in his glory and was soon to return to his father. He needed nothing. He's infinitely worthy of praise. And to whom one day every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth. And yet here he is, kneeling down at the feet of these disciples who have doubted, soon forsake, and there he is humbling himself, washing the feet, the dirty feet of his disciples, even rising from his supper, he says. I believe that's one of the expressions he's referring to here. It is that love expressed in humility. It amazes me. Oftentimes when you're talking about Christ, this is the very point in which many that are Muslims who disregard the deity of Christ stumble at. But it's in his humility where the beauty of love is being most wonderfully displayed and set as the example for his people. Secondly, I believe here, Christ refers to his love expressed and unconditionally. Notice the overarching preface again with me in John 13, 1, at the very end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Christ's love was a fixed love. This portion comes right after it says when Jesus knew the hour 
was come, that he's going to depart from the world. And it was at this very hour, every disciple of his would forsake him. Hear what Christ says in chapter 16, verse 32. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. If his love was in any measure, one increment dependent on those disciples, he would not have went to the cross. He would have turned back. There was nothing in them to move him to go to the cross. It was an unconditional, fixed, and set love that our Savior exhibited. And I believe he's referring to here on the basis of the context, precisely. His commitment to love was like that that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you remember there, it says, Israel, why have I loved you? And he says, because I have. I set my love on you, not because of you. You're not great in number. But it's an unconditional, fixed and set love of his own choosing. It's not conditioned on the person. And that is a love in which ought to be evident amongst us as well. And I believe the primary reference in which he's referring to here is of the expression of Christ's love, which he refers to, is that of his sacrifice, which would soon come to pass. Notice with me in John 15, chapter 13, or verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. Love will always find its greatest demonstration in sacrifice. It is one thing to say you love. It's another when that love is tested and you got to, there's sacrifice. It costs something. In the sacrifice of Christ, there is simply no comparison. There's no comparison to what was laid aside there on that cross. This is he who laid down his life for his own out of his own volition, no man took it from him. He submitted himself to be brutalized by those that he had created. To die naked, humiliated on a tree. Forsaken even of his father, to which there had never been a break in fellowship. He was eternally happy in communion with the triune God. And he's forsaken of his own father on the cross. This is the beauty. There was a song I was listening to on the way. And it talks about the king and all of his beauty. And it's referring to right there on the cross. There's the beauty of the love of Christ. It's there where he's nailed on the cross. It's there where he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. For the ungodly as we read this morning. There is the picture of the beauty of the love of Christ. There's simply no higher demonstration than that. Now this leads us into our second question. We're compelled to ask is how does this love, these expressions of love, serve to be the standard of our love to one another? One, this is the standard by which we can test the genuinity of our love. 
Does our love for one another here look like that of Christ? Do we have a principled and affectionate commitment that humbles ourselves? We esteem one another greater than we esteem our own selves. We attend to one another even more than our own selves. It's a test to some measure which we can look to and ask, does my love for your people, Lord, look like that of my Savior's? Do we endeavor to serve one another? Does our love look unconditional? Or does it waver pending on one another's behavior, background, personalities? Does our love, as the scripture says, does it endure all things, bearing with one another in love? Does our love take on sacrifice for one another? John refers to this in his first epistle. He says, if he laid down his life for us, we ought also to lay down our lives for one another. (coughs) Will we love even if it costs us something? Maybe our lives. That's what we're called to. When we say we're going to love one another in the church, it may cost everything. And that's been proven throughout church history. Something to consider. Secondly, the standard is that which we aim at. No one here keeps this perfectly, but it is in some measure present in everyone here who's trusted in Christ. But is it that which we're aiming at? Do we seek to love one another as Christ has loved? We will simply not do these things perfectly as I've said, but we ought ever to aim at it. And I would say thirdly is this. This standard of Christ's love to us serves to motivate our love to one another. This cannot simply, I believe, once again be overemphasized. When our love for one another grows weary, we ought to look to Christ who has never wearied in his love towards us. He's ever been steadfast in his love towards his people. When we struggle with that in the body, look to Christ in that perfect example. That ought to move us. When we find it hard to bear with one another, we ought but look to Jesus who has long bore with us. We find it, when we find it hard to consider one another greater than ourselves, we need to look to Jesus who laid aside his garments and took up his towel there at the feet of his disciples. And when opportunity arises to sacrifice for one another, whatever the cost may be, we need but look to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This will motivate us in our love to one another. We're all, there, there is times where we will grow weary in well-doing. That will happen on the road to glory. But we need look to Jesus. Reminded of how he has loved us. That perfect example that he set before us. And that, by the grace of God, will move us. Even as Paul said, by his mercies, we'll present ourselves a living sacrifice. And let's come to our third heading today. It's distinction. This will be rather short. Let us notice that it's distinction, the result of obedience. Notice with me in verse 35. 
By this, all will know that you are my disciples. Notice with me the unique place our Lord gives to this command. He places this command as the sole identifier of their being his disciples. Matthew Henry commenting says, Brotherly love is the badge of Christ's disciples. You know, you would think, and just for clarity, I do not, I am a cessationist, but you would think him speaking here to these 11 disciples, that he would say the miracles is what's going to set you apart. Wasn't that astounding in the early church? They were raising the dead. It was the shadow of Peter. He doesn't refer to that. He said, they won't know you're my disciples primarily by that. It's going to be by your love. There is a unique place. The love within the church sets the church apart by the very word of God. It is this sacrificial, unconditional, humble, affectionate commitment which has and does set Christ's disciples apart as his disciples. For one, this love cannot be falsified. Therefore, it sets his disciples apart. The world, no doubt, will love its own. That is true. The scriptures pronounce that even in these very, this very affectionate section of scripture from John 13 to 17. He mentions that, I believe, in a couple chapters. There is a love the world has for its own. But this, the world does not love in the manner of Christ's disciples. The greatest love this world can express is ultimately committed to self, conditioned on self, or some inherent motive within the object. There has to be something for them to gain out of it before they are really going to love one another. Such is not the case with us as Christ's disciples. We're not moved primarily on the basis of one another. But there's a higher commitment, even Christ himself. And therefore we love one another. For two, this love alone, by the implication of these words, will display our Lord's teaching to the surrounding world. They ought to see something different in the church. There should be a love that is heavenly, set apart, that can't be faked or imitated. It sticks the church out like a sore thumb in society. That ought to be the case. They ought to take note, indeed, that we are his disciples. I want to quote an example that supports this from Tertullian. Is an early church father who, unfortunately, he did, as some have said, fall away from the faith later. But speaking to the effect of Christian love, which he had seen in his day, he writes, But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die. For one another. This is what was so distinctively setting apart for the church, has been throughout the ages, and will be forevermore. And finally, let us come here to the very end, verse 35. Finally, let us take note that this distinction or the result of obedience to this command is conditioned on the continued 
obedience to this command. Notice with me in verse 35, if you have love for one another. Or a more literal translation would be, if you keep loving one another. I would exhort us here this morning. Let us take heed to that little word enough. Testimony of Christ in this world is always going to be here. But our Lord, who has determined the end from the beginning, did not omit the means to that end. And it is by divine design that this command is the means to our bearing testimony in this dark and passing world. This is the means through which we're going to bear witness to the gospel in this world. It is the love for one another that's going to set apart and substantiate the claims that we're making of Christ. It'll be by our love for one another. You know, I remember before, this is before I moved up here, spake to a Jehovah Witness once, and I asked him what made him become a Jehovah Witness. And the response he gave me will probably always stick with me. He said, you know, what really moved me to become a Jehovah Witness, he said, I've seen the way they cared for one another. And he said, when I looked into the Protestant churches, he said, I didn't see that. I would say, let that be a healthy warning to us. It is a sad thing when deceivers, having bore better witness one to another than we as the church have. Let us take warning. That which we have, let us not lose what we have. Let us endeavor by the grace and the help of God to secure and to continue to love one another. By His help, may that be our aim even this morning. We want to make just a couple closing points talking about how to cultivate an obedience to this command. But I do want to say one thing of warning to some, if there are any here that do not know Christ. Your greatest concern is not to see how you're going to cultivate some love that you do not have. Your greatest concern is to come to him who is loved himself. Come to him who suffered for sinners died in their place, bore their wrath, flee to him. That's that's your exhortation this morning. And a good diagnosis to know whether or not you're in the faith or not is no doubt love to the brethren. It is a fruit that is over and over again testified in 1 John. It will be there. It will be there. And it's not a love that is like this world that is contingent on the people. You are committed to the people of God because of Christ. It is an unconditional commitment. So a good diagnosis to search this morning is that even there, you love his people. Can you say with David, in the people of God is all my delight? Is that there? Because it will be if you're in him. He produces that. Once again, Paul, he says you will be taught of God. Matthew Henry commenting on this point, he says, whoever does that which is good is taught of God to do it. All who are savingly taught of God are taught this lesson 
to love one another. It is absolutely a necessary fruit of faith. So if that is simply not you here today, I exhort and I plead with you, don't even worry about the rest. Make peace with God through Jesus Christ. Flee to Him. Who readily receives the most wicked of men that will come to Him by faith. Now a couple closing points. How do we cultivate an obedience to this command? I've only got three points. Number one, study Christ. Herein is our motive. His love is foundational to our love. When we struggle in this area and when we are weak in this area, affections grow cold one to another. Look and study Christ. That will move you, if you are in Him, to love His people more and more. It's studying Christ. Many, many preachers have made this point, and I so heartily agree with it. They, they talk about they'll come to the Scriptures and they're looking for Christ as He was in every line of the Bible. They look for His types in the Old Testament, the revelation of His person in the New Testament. All the epistles. Study Christ. Look for Him in every line. And let your heart be raptured by that. And then the love one to another will flow. Study Christ. Secondly, set aside time for fellowship one with another. Consider Acts chapter 2. Our gathering together is indeed a means of grace. It is here we encourage, exhort, provoke one another to, to love and to good works, as Hebrews says. Acts chapter 2, they gathered house to house, breaking bread and praying one with another. This may very well be, when we talk about sacrificial love evidenced in the church, this may be the place where we've got to make sacrifices. It may cost to set aside time to be with God's people. So it may be something to consider. Let us endeavor as much as we have grace and time and God affords us the ability. Let us set aside time for fellowship. And thirdly, and I think this is no small point, bear one another in prayer. That sounds so very small. And prayer is often so disregarded in the church today. But that, when you read the New Testament and you're reading about Paul, he's saying, I bow my knee before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for you. He's praying these things for them. He says, I'm making mention of you always in my prayers. You want to grow in your love for one someone? Pray for them. That sounds so very simple, but it is so little obeyed. And oh, how we all need to grow in this. Bear one another in prayer. I remember here recently hearing... I think it was, I think it was Joel Beakey, and he was talking about there's a pastor in Africa that he had. Uh, I think it was Africa. I could be getting some of my details wrong, but either way, the point was this man had his name written down, and he would kneel down and pray for him every day. He's halfway across the world. Bear one another in prayer. Plead. Spurgeon said, "There is no greater kindness a man can do than to pray for." Pray, plead for one another, bear one another's burdens in prayer. Let us, by God's grace, heed these things this morning. If you would, let us go before our Lord in prayer. Let us close.
Father, we, we need your grace to do that which you've called us to do. Lord, may you be our help in this time. Cause us to walk in the ways of your commandments. Turn our eyes, O oh Father, from vain things and give us life in your ways. O oh Father, that your love, the love of your Son, would be exemplified in our lives one to another. Let us grow in our love one to another. Help us, we pray. And bring glory to Christ through it. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.